You're listening to audio from the Village Church, a community that's formed by the gospel and sent on God's mission, gathering weekly in the heart of downtown Hamilton, Ohio. For more information about the village or to connect with us, you can find us online at myvillagechurch.com. Good morning. My name is Michael. I am one of the pastors of the village. Thanks so much for hanging out with us, for praying and singing as one in Christ. And now we get to sit under God's word as disciples of Jesus. And so would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the gift of just this gathering and these people. Thank you that you're present, that you are that you are near. God, would you recapture our hearts wherever they have drifted and, and wandered throughout the week or throughout this, this day or throughout this morning or even since we've been in this room together? Would you just recapture our hearts? Would you remind us of what's true and what's good and of who you are and, and, and of who we are and, and of our desperate need to be near to you and our only hope to do that? by trusting Christ alone. God, would you show us that as your people, we don't live out of void, but we live out of the abundance of your provision. In Jesus' name, amen. There's this saying, it was probably a Chinese proverb, most of the good ones are, I think, Um, and, and it goes like this, it says, happy is he who wants what he has right? Happy is the person who wants what they have. And so you can like kind of get stuck in that and, and miss the point. But the, but the idea is like, it is a good thing to desire what you already possess, right? And, and, and it's really a matter of contentment. And, and, and so what I might add to that, just kind of set us up today is, is, is happy is he who wants what he has, but unsatisfied in endless measure is he whose treasure belongs to his neighbor. Unsatisfied in endless measure is he whose treasure belongs to his neighbor. Man, uh, hopefully you heard what Pastor Scott was talking about and Acts 29 and, and what we want to do and what we want to be about. Back in 2009, when we were trying to figure out what it looked like to to exist as uh, a people called the Village Church. And, and we, we began to meet together and figuring out what it looked like to be a, a, what we would later on call a, a community formed by the gospel and sent on God's mission. Um, and we were humbly stumbling through what that looked like. Uh, I connected with a, a church planter named Kevin, uh, Kevin Jameson. And uh, he was a part of a church that was a part of the X29 Network. So I got assessed, uh, and Kim and I had to sit in front of a, you know, a, a jury of our peers and, and sit across the counter, uh, across the table from some other church planters, and, and it was really difficult, and it was really challenging, and it was, it was a sculpting time in our life. Um, from that, one of the conditions for us was that, we would, that, we would, that I would meet with a pastor regularly to receive coaching, and you might say, like coaching, like what were you training for? Um, well, I'll say this, like, pastoring is not, like, the easiest thing on the planet, and planting a church is, is just nearly impossible apart from God's grace. And so they know that, and they knew I was young and dumb and, 
even younger and even dumber than I am right now, right? And, and so uh, I sat down with Kevin over coffee like many, many times. And in one of those times, the thing about Kevin is he, he never really told me anything. He just asked me questions that I hadn't thought of before. <laughs> and so I would leave those conversations just think like, huh, I don't know, right? And that was, that was good for me, right? And so one of the conversations as we were sitting there, I said, man, you know, like, I'm not trying to take over the world. I, I would love to just pastor 120 people and just do that faithfully and then die and be forgotten. And like, that would be just fine with me. And he's like, bro, like the problem is you, you just want to pastor a church of 120 people because that's what I'm doing. And you're pastoring a church of like six people or 15 or 30 or whatever it was at the time. <clears throat> and he's like, but trust me, if, you ha- if you're pastoring a church of 120 people, you're going to want to be pastoring the church uh, of 200 people. And, and when that happens, man, I'm pretty sure you're going to be wanna, wanting to pastor a church of 250 people and, and on and on and on and and in that, man, there's so much truth in that. And, and thankfully, like, we have a pretty healthy culture. I don't think we're, we're striving for world domination. But in that conversation, I left, and, and I had a little window into my heart's potential. And I had a, a window, a, a deeper window into the, the coveting nature of the human heart. That we are so easily drawn to be satisfied in what our neighbor has or what we cannot have. And so as we close down this section of Exodus, we've been looking at one of of the Ten Commandments for the last nine weeks, and we close that out today. Um, These ten words from God, and and, and we journey, the journey continues through Exodus, and after this we get to some like kind of really tough stuff. But but as we kind of, we come to an end of this section in the Ten Commandments, we find this foundation that presses against our our heart. And, and to this point, we've seen, seen God rescue and, and call and, and then begin to redeem a covenant community, his people. And, and what we've seen time and time again is that he is the foundation on which we build. He is the foundation for the individual who walks with him, and he is the foundation of this community. And then after that, the way that we live it, it flows to our hands and it flows to the way that we interact with our family and it flows to the way that we interact with our neighbor. And kind of at the end of this, to tie a bow on the, the end of this, this Ten Commandments section, he points back to the heart, the essence of self, and the essence of who God is. And this is what he says in Exodus twenty seventeen: You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. And you're probably like, I'm okay on most of those. But we understand that this sits in a context. And, and what was true for them is, is also true for us. It just might look a little different. The, the idea of coveting, one, one says it this way, covetous is desiring something so much that you lose your contentment in God. And that's like... Probably the best example or or the best uh, definition that I can see. Coveting is desiring something so much that you lose your contentment in God. And that's exactly what God is pressing against. The word covet 
It, it does not condemn kind of the general acquisition of possessions or like the desire just to have stuff necessarily. Um, it's, it's okay to, to work hard and to get things. Like it, so it's not coming against that, but it speaks to the, the idea of obsession or desire so strong that it compels someone to violate another person or their property. So, so the seed of a covetous heart then spills over into other aspects like theft and adultery and murder, like so many of these that we've seen before. So, so the idea is, is don't prize and don't treasure or don't obsess so deeply about your neighbor's haves that they become your needs. And, and if there's a big idea to kind of help with all of this, it's this. God's people don't live out of void, but out of the abundance of God's provision. So we're going to like tease this out in kind of a progressive way. And the first thing I want you to know is this. Comparison is a community killer. Recently, someone in my family, they got a, like a, a utility vehicle. It's pretty sweet. And so they, they retired recently, and they had the means to, to do this, and, and they never, like, splurge. Um, but they said, you know what? I'm going to buy this thing. It's like a side-by-side, drive around, have some fun for the kids and the grandkids and whatever. And so they, they did that. And, and another family member, actually a, a sibling to one of those people, came over and they were showing them, hey, do you want to see, like, you want to see the new ride? You want to see, like, and, and this person looks at it and turns and walks away and says, I can't even look at that. And they were like, what? Like, let's, let's go for a ride. Let's have some fun. And he, and he said, I, I don't know how much you spent on that, but it was too much. I'm not going to ride it. I'm not even going to look at it. Real life, like dead serious, painful, real life. <clears throat> See, I, I assure you that that didn't come from a place of like righteous judgment and like, hey, I, I think you might be living above your means. No, that came from a place of, of sadness, from my perspective, um, that, that you condemn your neighbor or your family because they got something that you couldn't. And so that is the seed of a coveting heart. I don't want you to think that you have to murder somebody to commit the, the act of coveting. They didn't do anything. They just, they just didn't celebrate with them, right? And so as we, as we conclude these ten words and, and the Ten Commandments, it's about covenant community. And what we see is comparison is an evil ember that burns relationships wherever it lurks. That's what comparison so when we find our greatest needs by staring at our neighbor's greatest halves, then we are drawn to a despairing wildfire of dissatisfaction that will never run out of forest to burn. And you might say, Michael, you're being dramatic. And what I would say is, you're being dramatic, right? Because, because this is how it works. Comparison, to be clear, comparison is not the thing. 
right? And we'll get to that. Comparison isn't the thing, but it's the bait that lures and that catches. Like, like you didn't know that something existed. You didn't know that you wanted it. And now you can't live without it. You can't enjoy it with someone else. You can't even look at it. But 10 minutes ago, you didn't even know that it was something that was in your heart. That's how comparison uh, is, is at play here. And so what this says is, is a donkey or a, a male or a female servant or, or your neighbor's wife or, or their house. Or, or, and then it says anything else, which is like, ah, like I'm good on the ox. You know, like, I've, Lord, I've never looked at someone's ox and said I have to have that. Or, or anything else. And so we look, and it, and, it, and it just shows up very quickly. House. Spouse. Phone. Technology. Car. The next new, shiniest, most beautiful clothes. Look. Lips. Shoes. Gifts. Title. Yard. Family. Truck. Headphones. Real life. It's in like up in the cloud stuff. Vacation destination. And we could go on and on and on. In this world, that, that these commandments come down the mountain and they show up in, actually seeing your neighbor was how these desires would be enticed. Like, they had to like, Leave their tent and stroll through the camp and, and peer and say, wow, that's nice. I, I think I need that. All right? But here's the thing. We don't have to do that now. Like, like for them, walking through camp or the community, observing and wanting, not being satisfied in, in, in haves or haves-nots, that was something that they actually had to do. But for us, it's, it's no wonder that we are the richest, softest, cushiest, wealthiest people to ever live. And yet we are the least satisfied, most depressed, most anxious, least content people probably to ever walk on the face of the earth. Like how can, how can that be? Like if your neighbors are the bait, then something like... Like social media, it puts on display the best your neighbor has to offer without, without you leaving the neighborhood, without you leaving your garage, without literally without you leaving your bed in the morning. You're bombarded with the world's best. And so many, they feed constantly putting before our eyes the most spacious, glorious, glamorous, beautiful, efficient, brightest, first, best, newest, must-haves. And, and because our neighbors live out of the same void, they want to put their best foot forward. They want you to think that they have it all together. And look, like, like tech companies, look, I love technology. Uh, they're, you know they're not for you, Right? <laughs> And what they're for is to continually feed your heart. It's not an accident, and it's not like, I mean, it's not even, a, a, it's not even funny now when you're like, I just talked about this, and here it is. 
Right. And like, and I dare you to click the link, because if you do, it's over. Like, you'll never get out of that, like, you just, until you, until you click purchase, like, you're just on a journey that someone else is dragging you on. Failed photoshops, there's like a, a, a world out there of people just making themselves, like, just, it would be like me with muscles, and you guys would be like, that's not, there's no way that's him. Girls, like, altering their body in, in ways that are, are, are sad, like, on the Photoshop side of things, but they're s- even sadder. When you look at why people would do that and, and body image stuff, it's so destructive. And, and even to the extent that, like, models and, and celebrities are, like, coming out and posting, like, real self images in, like, the magazine cover, and then, like, but this is what I really look like. So, like, like stu- in, in some way to, to offset the barrage of fake beauty that our hearts might go after. Like all of life unfolds, like, like, like all of it is like, like an as-seen-on-TV commercial. Just everywhere that we look and our hearts are gripped with needs that we didn't know that, that even existed five minutes ago and now we can't live without and we won't be satisfied until we, till we hold it. And, and when we dine on the best of the world around us before our feet hit the floor and, and at lunch and after dinner and before bed, like, what would you expect? What would you expect your heart to do? And it's all that, that kids see. The best athletes, the most beautiful whatever 17-year-old millionaire YouTubers giving away Teslas to whichever friend can sit in one for the longest amount of time for a long weekend. It's just, that's just fun. That's what 17-year-olds do. That's not, I, I've been 17. I never did that. And you just think, gosh, that's, I think I need to do that. Our parents competing, best teams, best stats, best grades, best roles, best whatever. And, and you have in, in, in the same lane the parent who's the, the proud parent of their honor student child. My, my child is an honor student at such and such. Good for you. No disrespect. And then in the, the lane right next to him, like you have the, like, my kid can beat up your honor student bumper sticker. And you're like, okay, all right. And it just, it just shows that the void is not the same but, but it's void all the same. When comparison is the measure of treasure to pursue, then, then we're doomed. And, and so are all of the relationships attached to our destruction. When others expose our void, we don't want the best for them. We don't want the best for our friends. We don't want the best for our for our family, when others delight in, in the fulfillment of our dreams, then neighbor becomes enemy because they're an enemy to our satisfaction. And so there's no, no love for neighbor, no celebrating the success of neighbor. It's just the opposite. It's, it's that we're drawn to sabotage and gossip and downplay the gifts of others and at, and at worst, steal and kill, and destroy. 
and commit adultery. So all these commands, they're all worked together. And it's all about God being at the center. And, and us living a life that orients Him as such. God's people, we don't live out of void, but out of the abundance of God's provision. And, and comparison is a community killer. And the second thing is coveting is a heart revealer. If comparison is the bait, then coveting is the bite. A, a word of caution here. Um, before you start blaming the clothing choices of your neighbor's wife for your lust problem, or, or before you start blaming your neighbor's spending habits for your addiction to, to sign and drive events, your neighbor's not the problem. Social media is not the problem. Dude, like anything else, receive, reject, redeem. Take the good, reject the bad, redeem in, in the way that we can. But, but your neighbor's not the problem. James, half-brother of Jesus, leader in the local church in Jerusalem, he says in, in the New Testament, as he, as he wrote to the church, he, he says this, James 1 Verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. And I guess in this context, like the trial is that all of life is an advertisement for, for the coveting nature of our hearts, right? So blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. And so we see in this text and in our focal text today that we'll hit on at the very end, it, it, it does say that God tests the validity of, of your faith, of our faith. And, and I think I would say this, that, that God knows the intentions and every motive of your heart, but you don't. And so when God tests us, it's not like, uh, I, wonder, I wonder if they're walking with me or not. He's showing us where we are not walking with him. And, and, and so James goes on. He says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his, get it, own desire. By his neighbor's stuff? No. It's not, it's not your neighbor's stuff. It's what's in you. It's, it's who you already are. That is the bite. So, so each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then when it, is, when it has conceived, that desire conceives, it gives birth to sin. That is, it shows up in our hands. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Later on in James chapter 4, he, he says it this way. He says, you desire and you do not have so you murder. It's, it's all the same thing. It's out of the essence of who you are, your life, your actions, your words, the things that you do flow from that. The words that you say, it all flows from who we are in the center. Like, 
Like, do you get it? Whatever sin that shows up in you when your coworker opens the champagne to celebrate getting your promotion, that, that doesn't feel good. <laughs> so, the, so the sin that shows up when your coworker opens the champagne celebrating your promotion, it's not your boss's fault. It's not your coworker's fault. It's not your neighbor's fault. It's not your career ambition's fault. It's the sin of your heart that was maybe lying dormant, subtle as it were, controlling you already. You just weren't aware that it, that it had its hand on the joystick of your contentment and your joy and your deepest desires, your treasure. And all it did was just reveal what was already there. And, and this center of heart's desire, it takes, it takes us all the way back to the first command and, and one of its definitions. Coveting is contentment in and desire for something other than God. And, and when that stirs within us, there can be no satisfaction and contentment is but a, a vapor and peace within us is is, is a puff and smoke of a pipe dream. You can't have it. So you might say, uh, well, well, how do I know if my desires are pure and if I'm like coveting? And I would say, that, I'm super glad you're asking that question because that is like just a tough thing. Like, is this a, a good desire that I should pursue or is this not a good desire? And I'll give you three things really quickly. One is this, Pray. Just posture your heart humbly before God. God, I, I'm drawn to this thing. Is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? Is, this, is, is the end of this path, if I pursue this, is it in destruction? Because God, if it is, I, I want nothing to do with it. Humble yourselves before the Lord, right? Pray. Secondly, search godly wisdom. And I would say there are two ways to do that. One, open up the scriptures. You, you might be saying something like this. My spouse is less than they once were, and I want out. Right? My neighbor got out of their marriage, and they seem to be living their best life now. I want that. Right? If you can, if you can find that, that you submitted your heart in prayer... Open up this book and see what it says. Because God's not in the business of, of building out the, the perfect design for, for perfectly full living and contentment. He's not in the business of, of doing that as a suggestion, but he shows you the way of life. And if you say, this seems good, and, and then search it out and see what God's word has to say about it. And, and secondly, uh, seek your brothers and sisters in community. Right? And so maybe you're in debt, like a bajillion dollars, but you see like a smoking deal on a helicopter. And you're like, I've never flown one. I don't know, but I think that I need that. Like what if you, 
in a community group gathering, on a group text, whatever it is, you showed up, you, you went out, hey guys, I need to like run something by you. I'm thinking of getting like a helicopter. And they would be like, and they would ask the right questions. And I'm, my guess is, you probably wouldn't end up getting a helicopter. Because in godly wisdom, they would say, no, you have a bajillion dollars in debt and you, you don't know anything about helicopters. Divorce, helicopter, whatever it is, just think about this. If, if you're unwilling to pray and you're unwilling to seek the scriptures, and you're unwilling to submit your heart's desire to your brothers and sisters that you're living life together with in, in an attempt to walk with Jesus, then you've probably already made your decision, and it's probably already the wrong decision. So the first thing is, man, do I have a desire to pray? Do I have a desire to seek actually what God would tell me? And do I have a desire to 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 submit this longing to those in community that care for me. The third thing is just reflect on the fruit. Think about this. Are you living out of the evidence, the fruit of the Spirit or of the flesh? Like if you have this thing or if you don't have it, is your joy, your peace, your patience, your kindness, your gentleness, your self-control, your steadfastness, your, your faithfulness, your life on mission, are any of those things deterred or determined by whether or not you have it or if you don't? Because if they are, then you're probably feeding your flesh. God's people don't live out of void, but, but out of the abundance of God's provision. Comparison is a community killer, and, and coveting is a heart revealer. And the third thing doesn't end in R, and I tried. But gazer, I don't even think it's a word. So here's what it is. Contentment has a fixed gaze. And for those of you in the teaching roundtable after this, I'm sorry. I just couldn't get it to work. Contentment has a fixed gaze. There's this guy. He's not real. He's a pirate. His name is Jack Sparrow. All right? And, and he has this compass. And if he holds this compass, you don't, it doesn't matter who it is, but it, he, he's like on the seas a lot, right? As all pirates are. And he has this compass, and what this compass does is it, is it tells him whatever he wants most, and it points to it. And so anybody would grab it and say, your compass is broken. He would be like, nope, it's fine. Give it back to me. And, and it doesn't point north. It always points to whatever he wants more than anything else. Whatever his treasure is, that's what the compass points to. Somebody else takes it, does the same thing. It points to whatever they want most. Now, now at times, he might be conflicted. Like, I don't know what I want most. And maybe it's helpful in that regard. Sometimes it changes, and what he thought he wanted most was actually something else. And so it actually changes course. Imagine if, if I said, hey, just under your seat, there's not. Uh, there's, a, there's a compass, and I want every one of you just to grab it out from under your seat. And it's going to point to whatever in this life you want more than anything else. What's it pointing to? That is to say, what would what is in your hand reveal about what is in your heart? And I'll ask a couple more questions. Is that the same thing that it would have pointed to five years ago? Or yesterday? Or this morning? Or, or this evening? Or tomorrow? Or five years from now? 
My guess is it's not the same thing. It almost seems that the persistent hunger and thirst of this life is about wants and needs and haves and desires. And if we can behold whatever we think we need most to be most satisfied, content, fulfilled, then we win. Then we win in life. And, and depending on what it is, you may indeed feel like you won the moment or, or the day or the week until your heart longs again. And, and if you just think about that, then you can see why am I drawn to be so dissatisfied? Because all of life is about wanting something and then getting it and finding out that that's not what you really wanted and moving on. To, it's like, Jesus, he, he contrasts this in John chapter 6. I'm, kind of, I'm starting in verse 22, and I'm just kind of skimming around a little bit. Um, there's this manhunt on the sea. Uh, Jesus had just fed 5,000 people with like a loaf of bread and a pack of fish sticks. And, and they were like, this is, where's this dude? Like, he can like give us stuff, and so where's he at? And he just disappears, and then he's supposed to be on a boat, and he's not. And he's like, where is he at? And then, and then it, it kind of culminates in, in 25. So this is John 6, 25. When they found him on, e, on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when, when did you come here? Like, how did you get here? And Jesus is like, don't worry about that, but this is what I want you to know. And whenever he says truly, truly, just take a step back because it's like for real. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, that's kind of weird. What he's saying is, you're seeking me not because you saw an affirmation from God that I was the one. Not because you saw me do things that no one else can do and you know who I am. Not because you saw signs, but because you ate, in, in your, uh, because you ate your fill of the loaves. So he says, not because I am who I am do you seek me, but, but because of what you can gain from me. Do not... Work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Gosh, do not work for the food that perishes, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And then they say this thing, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus said, believe in me. And they're like, gosh, that seems so easy. All I have to do is to believe in you. And he, and he said, believe in the one whom God has sent. That is me. And then in verse 30, he says, so they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? Like, we want more information. What work do you perform? And then, and then they're saying, Jesus, like, you're not really all that because check this out. Our ancestors, they have a story too. And listen to their story. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And so, Jesus, you think you're something? Moses literally gave our ancestors food from heaven. It just showed up in the morning and they ate it. And Jesus is super impressed. Wow, it's incredible. Moses did that? 
And this is what Jesus says. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said, I want that bread always. And he said, I'm the bread. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. What if I told you the key to contentment in this life and in the next is not is not looking over your neighbor's fence and going after the next thing that glimmers and shines, but it's to fix your gaze upon the one who satisfies in the depths of who we are. Christ crucified for our sin. Christ risen to overcome this world. Christ reigning as king of all things. What if I told you Christ crucified and risen and reigning and opens a a world without void no matter what your neighbor has? True, full life, heart contentment has a fixed gaze and that gaze is at the person Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So what if the direction of your compass never changed no matter what came along? What if your greatest treasure was always your greatest treasure? And and what if the hope of your greatest treasure, the thing that you want more than anything else, was yours without measure now and forever? God's people don't live out of void, but out of the abundance of God's provision. And when when we get God and all he offers, his sons and daughters in Christ, our deepest longings find their their greatest hope and their yes in Jesus Christ our Lord. And what happens is he, he reorients what our hearts call treasure. Look, and I'm not saying that that. If you put your hope in Christ, then then gosh, you get the desires of your heart. What I'm saying is when you put your hope in Christ, then Christ becomes the desire of your heart. In Christ, our hearts forever satisfied. In Christ, our community and our relationships forever unified. We don't boast and and we don't allow ourselves to be easily enticed to, to harm the hearts of others. And at the same time, we get to celebrate what our neighbor has, even if it's what we don't have. Imagine the freedom of a sibling or of a neighbor or of a coworker. Imagine the freedom of, of them winning, and we consider it our win. And that may sound like something impossible. And what I would say is, it is impossible when, when we are fixated on others, but when we fixate upon Christ to us and in us and for us and through us, then it's the fruit that grows from eternal life. Happy is he who wants what he has. And there is nothing more satisfying 
There is no greater need, no deeper longing than the one satisfied in being a child of God. And that we get without measure or in by casting our hope and our void on Christ alone. So, so the end of the Ten Commandments, it, it kind of... It kind of rolls down the mountain just as big and, and as dramatic as the beginning. And I just want to read. Look, there are books written about these three verses that I'm going to talk about for 30 seconds. All right. I, I just want to read and, and point you to something. All right. So this is how it goes. This is how Exodus 20, 18 through 21. Again, the Ten Commandments coming down on tablets of stone in Moses' hand. This is how the, it kind of wraps up. The band can come on up. Now, when... When all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and they trembled. That makes a whole lot of sense. I couldn't imagine doing anything else, right? And so there, there's quite an attention grabber here that God is leading with, right? And, and it says they stood far off, which to be clear is the only reasonable response to the nearness of God as we are, if only compared by the Ten Commandments. If it was only these ten lines that God said, do this, and God showed up, run. Because we're all but sinners in need of grace. And they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Talking about being dramatic, huh? It's true. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. Don't fear, but you better fear. That's literally exactly what he says. Don't, don't fear all the things, only fear God and know that he's come to test you. And the people stood far off while Moses, check it out, drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Here's what happens here. God literally lays down the law. Okay? And the people fear God. It's understandable. They can't. And we can't draw near, but we have one who can, who did, and who does draw near for us. And here's the thing. Just as the manna that Moses delivered, that was not, that was not it. And in the same way, there is a better Moses. One says it this way. Uh, Tim Keller says many things about this stuff, but he says, Jesus is the true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord who mediates a new covenant. And when we put our heart's hope in that one Jesus, that fear gives way to love and that holy, righteous fire and, and, and holy thunder gives way to a family meal around the body and blood of Jesus. Because we have one that drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And we get to draw near today and we get to share in that meal 
with the glory of God because of the broken body and the spilt blood of this mediator, Jesus, who literally stood between us and him and all of our failures and all of our wandering and all of our coveting heart stuff. He draws near and he takes on our sin to give us life. So we get to respond today. You can sit right where you are and, and pray, right? You can stand up and sing. You can pray at that prayer bench. You can pray over by that red tree. Someone would love to pray with you. And if you're in Christ, you can take communion, the cup, and the bread, which reminds us and lets us declare the glory of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, thanks for your gift and for your word and for these people. Would you draw us near? Would you show us a better way? Would you give us the bread that if we eat it, we never hunger again? God, would you, would you give us the blood that if we, if we taste it, we never thirst again? Would you let our hearts be satisfied in nothing but you? In Christ's name.